Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Many of the most common cancers that exist need a specific molecule to grow and spread. In other words, they're addicted to these molecules for their survival. So, the hope is that stopping these molecules will perhaps force the cancer to die. Professor Elizabeth Vincan is a senior medical scientist and researcher at the Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity, with joint appointments at the University of Melbourne's Doherty Department and the Victorian Infectious Diseases Reference Laboratory. 20 years ago, Professor Vincan set out to understand how to curb cancer's addictions. Her research group was among a number to realise that some cancer cells always switched on specific genes that function in an ancient form of cell-to-cell communication. And the idea was that if you could find out what these genes did and block them, it could provide a new way to treat cancer. Professor Elizabeth Vincan took some time out to chat about her work with Dr Andy Horvath. Professor, you get around. You're in the area of cancer research, right? Yeah, so that's I fell into that uh, really in the late 1990s, coming from a sig- signal transduction background, which sounds like a really complicated word, but really all it means is how cells communicate. So really it's, you know, cells need to know what to do, where to be, where to go, and that's what signal transduction is. Um, and at that time I was a young uh, postdoc Uh, mum and um, working where I was working was just too difficult because I had to go over the Westgate Bridge and then a position came up at Western Hospital that suited me and I fell into cancer research and the good thing about that is that I don't actually have any formal cancer training. I never learnt it um, in the same way that other people do. So when I address a question I come at it from a completely different um, tack And so that has been instrumental in the path that my career has taken. Right. So you went from how cells communicate with each other. Were you working on a particular communication system? That particular communication system was, um, this is a big word, phosphatidylinositol signalling at the baker um, in cardiac myocytes. Good grief. That might be sexy (laughs) to some people, but unpack it for us. It was very sexy at the time, and it's all very sexy. But um, I I learned the fundamentals of how to do signal transduction. I had an incredibly fabulous uh, mentor, Professor Elizabeth Woodcock, and it meant that I took those skills when I sort of fell into this new communication pathway called WINT signalling. Now, this particular pathway is um, really important in developmental context, so embryogenesis. So when the cells talk to each other, when they're an embryo and says, right, we're going here, we're going there, what are you doing? Um, So that's what that big long word is about. That's what WINT signalling is. That's exactly what the pathway that I ended up falling into. Um, In in the mid-1990s, two major pathways collided developmental biology and cancer. Now explain that for us because in both of those situations there's a lot of cell growth going on and you were instrumental in actually bringing those two concepts together to see if there's similarities. Exactly and so there are a lot of uh, common pathways, common processes and wind 
you know, signaling, which That's is my, in the cancer cells. which is yep. my pathway, um, is very important in a developmental context. But really growing, what I realised way back in the late 1990s, is that growing a solid tumour, for example, is very similar to growing an organ um, in the body. The same pathways are involved, but everyone thinks of cancer as uncontrolled growth. In fact, it's actually the opposite. Um, in cancer, this pathway is really constrained because if you think about it in just simple terms, uh, we go from you know two or three cells to being a three and a half kilo baby in nine months. If we had a tumour growing that fast and if that pathway was as active in the adult, we'd actually kill the host. Cancers couldn't survive. And so this concept that it's not uncontrolled, it's actually far more rigorously controlled and constrained has been a concept that uh, the cancer biologists uh, had to get past. And that's what my work has done. So you've got a really fresh look at how cancer works. You weren't stuck in the dominant dogmas of what the cells were doing. You brought in new thinking Mm. into that. Where did that lead? Because I'm part of the WINT community internationally, so I'm internationally recognised for the work, or my lab, I should say, is internationally recognised for the work that we've done. And even though I've been working on it uh, since 1999, um, at least the concepts, it actually got recognised earlier this year. So it's taken a long time. We published in Cancer Research in uh, March earlier this year. We made the cover of the journal. And my team uh, provided pharmacological and genetic proof that we actually get signalling from outside the cell in a, in a cancer cell, even though there's mutations to the intracellular parts of the pathway that activate. Now, this concept was really difficult because people focus on just the genomics. Um, and so once something's mutated, they thought the pathway's activated, end of story. Okay, let me unpack that again. Yep. So the cell has genetic mutations that we know are associated with cancers. But what your team was suggesting was there was an outside signaling from the cell that actually makes that happen. Precisely. And in fact, what our work has shown and others, this is all coming together beautifully, just all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are falling into place. Um, And what we've shown is that in fact, those um, genetic mutations that initiate cancer make the platform. On top of that, there's my genes. And when we actually block my gene, which is that I've been working, my lab's been working on Frizzled 7, if we block that, uh, we actually hit cancer on the head. Now that, to me, has just been wonderful. Let's define WINT. Mm -hmm. We're going to be using this word a lot. lot. What is WINT? So WINT is a growth factor, um, which is a communication, cell-cell communication uh, molecule. And it's ancient. It's conserved through evolution. Oh, so we find it in early mammals. Early, even less than mammals. And uh, it's a pathway that has been mostly defined in developmental contexts. So no one could have envisaged back in the 80s and the 90s that a pathway that's important in worms, in flies, in, you know, mice, in all sorts of lower animals will actually end up being therapeutically targeted and interrogated for anti-cancer treatment in this decade and the decades coming. Right, because it's associated with cell growth. Cell growth. Let's define frizzled seven. What's frizzled seven? It's a cute name. The names come from the fly people. 
and fly geneticists have a wonderful uh, sense of humour. So basically when they did these genetic uh, studies in flies, the fly that had the frizzled mutation looked frizzled. Literally, the word means frizzled, just like we look like, you know, the it's night like a, after. A, a bad hair day, basically. <laughs> hair day. Right, these guys had a bad hair day or and, bad and in, bristle day. In fact, day. it was a bad, bad bristle day. And, um, and then those, obviously, names now are taken on into the mammalian context. But as humans, we've got, as, mam- as mammals, we've got 19 wins and 10 frizzles. So frizzled is the um, cell surface receptor. So it's the molecule that receives the growth factor signal. The wind. The wind. I see. And so there's 10 of those, 10 frizzles, and they're an incredibly interesting family of cell surface molecules, and they have quite defined functions. Um, and we focus on frizzled 7 because it just kept popping up in developmental context, dictating this and that. Um, and also, it is the only frizzled of the 10 family members that is consistently expressed in every stem cell population studied. And also, during this time, people in the Hans Cleavers group, Nick Barker and uh, those my colleagues, showed that cancer actually starts in the stem cells. The cancer cells take this need for frizzled 7 and hijack it for their own purpose. Now, that is why we can block cancer growth by blocking frizzled 7. Got it. So let me see, as if I'm a good student and I've passed my exam, <laughs> um, the cell has a mutation um, inside it that causes cancer. But on the surface of the cell, as made by its own genetics, the cell's genetics, is a receptor that accepts signals from other cells. And that we're calling that the frizzled 7 receptor. And Wint comes along and says, woohoo, this is what you guys should be doing. So there's an interaction between Wint, Frizzled 7, and that is where we're targeting cancer treatments at the Frizzled 7 receptor. Precisely. Oh, I understand cancer. (laughs) And so Gen and Tech, um, I mean, are going, you know, can I say gangbusters? Yeah. uh, With making peptides um, that specifically inhibit aspects of Frizzled 7 signaling. So we're trying to separate the good signaling from the bad because obviously stem cells need it but also what we show what my um, team showed was that for example in your gut your lining can take a hit from knocking out frizzled seven okay and you recover and the intestine recovers because one of the two of the other family members come up and compensate compensate for frizzled seven they don't do it as well but they will um, make the epithelium recover however cancer doesn't have the same mechanism so once you knock out Frizzled 7, there's no compensatory mechanism. So you knock out Frizzled 7, they don't grow. That's convenient because it means we don't knock out the whole body. Exactly, which, which means um, so there's, so the, there's Frizzled 7 antibodies already in clinical trials, phase 2 clinical trials. And what really our recent, recent work showed was that it's not just for cancers that don't have a mutation inside the cell. It's for all wind-addicted cancers. Now, that was the, that was the real take-home message from our work. People sort of think, okay, so we've got a mutation inside the cell, no need for the top. Um, but if we don't have a mutation in the cell, then we need signaling from the top. It actually doesn't work like that. It, uh, we need signaling from the top whether we have a mutation inside the cell or not. So you've completed the picture of why some cancers don't have the gene. It's about cell signalling. 
So right now we're recording in November 2019. There are clinical trials going on. Yes. Tell, tell us about those. So, so far the clinical trials uh, using the Frizzle 7, um, anti-Frizzle 7 antibodies have focused on cancers that don't have a mutation inside the cell in the same pathway. Um, so really what our work has shown is that it doesn't matter whether it's there's a mutation inside the cell or not in the wind signal pathway. Uh, the anti-frizzled antibodies will work. And we actually, um, Cancer Research asked us to write a review to place our unique sort of finding into the broader cancer context. And so my um, my team did a, an unbiased search of publicly available genomic data and we mapped tumours that have uh, winter-dictive tumours and then calculated the percentage of aberrations at the cell surface, and then the percentage of aberrations inside the cell, all of them had both, which is exactly what we've been working on for 20 years. <laughs> what a relief. So it was it was just superb. I mean, it was just, uh, yeah. You it, found the other side of cancer treatment, which wasn't just the genes, it was the cell surface. And so now everybody, this is a world, this is a global movement. I mean, everybody's moving towards phenomics and epigenomics because cells... You might need to define those. Phenomics, phenomics what's that? is what the cells look like. Yep. So um, you can have all the genetics in the world, but at the end of the day, where that cell is... Because gene expression is complex. Not all genes get expressed in certain ways. So even though the map's there, the look might be different. The look it might be different. And it depends on where that cell is. And it's influenced by its environment. It's influenced by what's actually impacting on it. Now, those sort of changes, depending on what they are, might be reversible. So it can't be a mutation because a mutation is irreversible. The bits of the genes that actually start making the gene products are modified so that they're not expressed or they're amplified or, you know, various other mechanisms. We now have high throughput uh, platforms for looking at what the cell looks like and also looking at what are these other changes that are not genetic mutation but changes to the blueprint, changes to the DNA. And that is really exciting. In the 1990s and early 21st century, we were asking the question, why can't we cure cancer? How's it looking from now on? I'm really, really enthusiastic and optimistic for the future. And one of them, one of them is because of these types of studies. But what really has made these sorts of studies possible, because we eventually have to go into a human, a human context. There's all sorts of examples where, you know, mice, even primates, don't accurately predict how humans respond to a certain drug. And the real breakthrough, um, as everybody knows, is organoids. And that actually started with um, Professor Hans Clevers in the Netherlands. And really it started with um, Nick Barker in his laboratory discovering the marker, an exclusive identifier of adult stem cells in the gut. Okay, let's talk about organoids. Organoids are like kind of like miniature versions of clumps of cells that resemble the organs in our body. The, the organs in our body have stem cells and they those stem cells know what they have to do. In hindsight, this is so obvious, <laughs> but obviously it wasn't obvious until the experiments were done. But the, if you take out a stem cell from your intestine, for example, put it somewhere else, it'll still make intestine. It knows it has to make intestine. So in, in many ways, this is sort of like when cancer spread to other organs, like an ovarian cancer will still make an ovarian tumour 
in the lung or wherever, you know, or whatever he goes. So really, that actually really blew the field open because now we could actually grow replicas in a Petri dish of human tissues, normal, but also tumour-derived organoids. And there was a a publication just recently, uh, earlier this year, that showed that the response of the organoids in a tissue culture matches the response of the patient to a particular drug. So in a two or three week turnaround time, we can actually work out which drug will work on a particular person. Now that means they're treated with the correct drug from the outset, one, but secondly, they're not treated with something that isn't going to work on their cancer anyway. And all drugs have some level of you know, side effects. And it just means that this is now a reality. We can genuinely personalise anti-cancer treatment to the individual. Now, that is just groundbreaking. You've allowed this to arrive. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, a small chink, a <laughs> small piece of the puzzle. <laughs> Let, let's talk about the various inspirations you've had on this journey. I mean, you came to cancer through the eyes of sort of biochemical signalling between cells. What else inspired you to enter this area besides finding a hospital that's <laughs> close to your home? <laughs> it was actually going to my first wind meeting in 1999. I mean, at that time, I was one of a handful of cancer biologists. The two fields had just collided and everybody else was a developmental biologist. And, you know, there were people talking about dictus, dictocilium and, um, you know, flies, frogs, you name it, um, all sorts of work. But the, the sort of processes that this pathway regulates just called out cancer, 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 because almost at the same time, um, a very uh, clever uh, pathologist in Germany called uh, Thomas Brablitz. He was a pathologist, a medically trained, and did um, his PhD in a developmental organism called the sea urchin and was looking at the wind signaling pathway in the sea urchin. And then when he looked at colon cancer tissues, he noticed very similar um, staining for the effector of wind signaling, which is called beta-catenin. It doesn't really matter, but it means that the levels of this particular effector were not homogeneous. They varied through the tumour. And he made the connection that this is very similar to the patterning that you um, have in developmental contexts. And um, and so he coined the term, I think, uh, neomorphogenesis. And, you know, that's how I sort of fell into it as well. Because my gene, we ended up getting purely serendipitously. One of my experiments gave us data that I just could not understand. And um, I was trying to market this for a grant at the Cancer Council of Victoria. And I just didn't know how to market it. And my partner, who's really savvy on the internet, found this neomorphogenesis paper in some nondescript archives of something rather, journal, and boom. Um, and then within no time at all, the field, uh, which is a, a cancer field, picked up Thomas's work. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. You've got to love a dollop of serendipity. <laughs> so you drew together this sort of neomorphogenesis. Um, in other words, he identified essentially the Wynn family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really, I mean, uh, uh, people, it's really hard to sell something like that when there's no precedence. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, a committee who f- decides on 
grant funding can only go by what they're presented. And if you have no evidence, it's really hard to sell it. So finding this little nondescript paper that actually matches the findings. um, And then within, um, that was in 1998 was that paper. By 2001, he was already publishing in PNAS and really a revolutionised colorectal cancer um, metastasis, so spread to other organs in the body. And he and I collaborated for a number of years. So it's hard to do a paradigm shift in thinking when there's no evidence for that new paradigm. That's quite a feat. Somebody has to believe it. (laughs) Someone has to fund it. Give it a go. (laughs) All right. That's amazing. What sort of changes have you seen in your field that you've been excited about? They've been enormous. I mean, within my uh, career time um, of being able to see the discoveries from our research, go into the clinic, whether it's, you know, a pre-screen for cancer, whether it's a new therapy. Now, we haven't actually done all of that work, but we contributed uh, parts of the jigsaw puzzle that helped um, work out exactly how to use, um, you know, for example, anti-frizzled 7 therapeutics. Um, Will it be tolerated? All that sort of stuff comes from, you know, work that we did in mice and uh, the power of um, mouse transgenics. You can't really sort out the function of a gene um, unless you use mouse transgen- transgenics because it's in vivo. Growing a 3D tumour is very complex. But once those studies are done, then you have to go into a human context. And that's where, you know, the human organoids have just been revolutionary. And, uh, you know, it was the nature method of 2017. There's a Keystone meeting uh, January 2020 just on using organoids. Uh, for modelling infection and human disease. I mean, the field's just gone gangbusters. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, what surprised you about your research? What has pleasantly surprised you or caught you unawares? Just my, my wonderful, wonderful team. I know um, whenever you're writing a grant or you're writing a, an application, it's all me, 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 but it's not me, me, me. It's actually my team, my team, my team. The the way they feed off each other, the way they work together is uh, phenomenal. The way that I run the lab is we work really hard, we work to deadline, then we really celebrate every single success because <laughs> they're few and far between. <laughs> yeah, obviously, you've got a reputation for your lab parties then. <laughs> <laughs> we do. I've got, a, I've got bottles of champagne where we've celebrated publications and, uh, and I have actually now a bottle of uh, champagne from the uh, 2018 Wint meeting in uh, Heidelberg, Germany that's signed by the real gurus in the, uh, in the field. I mean, I'm just that to me that's priceless. That's better than any trophy award. <laughs> yeah, I've never to be honest, I've never ever um, applied for a trophy or an award. Uh, just simply because I just didn't have the time. I mean, we were too busy trying to get funding, um, making sure that everybody had a job, you know, and that was um yeah, just never had the time for that. What advice do you give to your students? I've been instrumental in making sure that whoever leaves my lab um, goes to a good lab. So uh, my advice to when you're finishing a postdoc or whatever uh, stage you are in your career, really do your homework. Over the years, you know, you can actually land in a good place and you can land in a place that doesn't really support you. And I've made sure that my guys have landed in really good places and they're they're doing brilliantly um, in their own right now. Fantastic. The family goes on. Yeah, yeah. And we still collaborate and we still um, Skype and uh, celebrate our little successes. Just like just like your cells are signalling to each other, you still connect. Oh, very <laughs> good. <signals>. Very good. <laughs> um, 
Professor, next time we see a cancer story in the news or discussions about cancer or funding promotions in public, what would you like us to think about? Oh, I would like it to be just a little bit more transparent. Um, so lots of things, you know, say that it's a cure, but actually, or, you know, the new breakthrough, it actually isn't. And also just to have a look at just how much funding uh, goes into one particular cancer, especially when it comes to a small population like Australia. Um, and I, I think there's a disproportionate level of funding, although I think all cancer research should be stupendously funded, but there's a disproportionate funding and often it's actually through, you know, good uh, promotion and media, which is great. But I just wish we had it for some of the other cancers, like colon cancer, which is uh, that liver cancer is really an atrocious outcome uh, for patients. And really, there's not enough uh, resources thrown at liver cancer, which is why I'm actually really encouraged by um, by media, actually, like the the Carrie uh, Bitmore's, you know, public cap- campaigns, ca- public campaigns for brain cancers. Lots of cancers don't actually have the support that some of the other cancers do, and it's been absolutely wonderful that um, all the headway, you know, has been made. But really, take a cancer breakthrough with a grain of salt and then Google. I mean, I Google a lot (laughs) and you find out, you know, you actually find out a lot about the rural nuts and bolts numbers. There's fantastic websites, the Cancer UK. And I think there's nothing worse than, you know, thinking there's a breakthrough around the corner, but it's actually 10 years away and you've got six months. Um, However, if if I was a cancer patient, I would put my hand up for every trial, donate all of my tumours, organs, whatever, because that's what really keeps the field moving. Professor Elizabeth Vincan, thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. <laughs> thank you to Professor Elizabeth Vincan, Senior Medical Scientist and Researcher at the Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on November 12, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.